This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, and your stories, too. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of the best material we put up on the air, your stories. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And this next story is brought to us by Alex Cortez, who recently went to a fascinating event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters, what they call the home office in Bentonville, Arkansas, and pitch their American-made products to get into their over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products over a 10-year period. And Alex now brings us the story of an entrepreneur he met there. Marissa Sergi is a redhead. I think the color of our hair gives us a platform to embrace our true selves. So being able to have that stigma in the public eye that we are these sassy firecrackers that are forced to be reckoned with gives us the ability to really meet our full potential and be fun and quirky and not be ashamed of it because we already have the reputation may as well meet up to it right and as you could probably guess by now marissa is she started a wine company appropriately named redhead at the age of 19 which you'd probably think is illegal to drink wine let alone to sell it but not in her state of ohio if both of your parents consent you are legally allowed to have a drink I've been drinking wine since day one, to be honest. My grandpa, Sergi, would give my sister and I thimbles full of wine. And my mom hated it. She would complain and just scream, oh my goodness, you can't do this. She's only like four or five weeks old. And my grandpa, Dominic Sergi, said, if you don't like it, you could pay for babysitting. And my mom stopped complaining. But hey, winemaking is in my blood figuratively and literally. I grew up in a very Italian-centered family and my grandparents immigrated here from Italy over 40 years ago and brought over the tradition of winemaking. So growing up, I always had lots of family and friends coming in and out of my grandparents' house, drinking wine and eating food just like they were one of us and it was Definitely something that inspired me to carry on with the family tradition. My grandpa passed away. I was only two years old, so I don't have any memory of him, but I'm able to embrace his memory through making wine. My father, Frank Sergi, he founded the winery where I work at called Lula Bella Winery. It was just a label to start. I wanted to design a fun label after doing market research, just looking what Labels appealed to me as a young person, not you know, of age, but I knew labels were very important, so that's why I created Redhead Wine to have a very appealing label, yet having a high-quality wine to match the packaging. And I was able to get a winemaking degree from Cornell University called Viticulture and Analogy. Which some people might think is a joke of a program. I mean, you're already doing enough tricking in college as it is. Do you really need a major in it? You know what? Yes. I love when people tell me that because 
The number one most failed class at Cornell University is the wines class within the hotel school. It's because people come in there and be like, oh, I'm gonna drink wine all day, get an A and peace out. Well, um, when you fail and you can't get your diploma, it is a big deal. It is a lot of wine chemistry, biochemistry, microbiology, vineyard management, plant science, gen chem, advanced chemistry, organic chemistry, wine chemistry, one, two, and three. You can't just walk through the winemaking major at Cornell University drunk for the next four years, you know what I mean? You gotta pay attention, you need to know your stuff or at least get help if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I was a classic college student not paying attention in my class and I was texting and checking my email and I received an email that if you are a student entrepreneur and had a product or an idea to come to a meeting to receive free wings over Ithaca. Best wings in Ithaca. I love hot wings. They're very expensive, so I was a broke college student. So I was like, I'm there. I don't have a business, but I had redhead wine. I happened to have a bottle with me on campus. So I was like, I'm hungry. I'm going to check it out, get some wings and leave. Hopefully no one will notice me. But then I forgot. I had red hair. I stand out. I also had a bottle of wine, so everyone's like, oh, wine, how cool. And then I piled my wings very high on my plate. And then one of the professors running that meeting was like, if you're a student entrepreneur, you must give an elevator pitch at this meeting. It's like, crap, I can't leave because everyone knows I'm here. So I didn't even know what a pitch was. I Googled wine industry facts, slapped something together, didn't completely fall my face in front of 100 people that were there. and. Two days later, I received an email from the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences that I was nominated as the Student Business of the Year for my college. I was like, okay, um, I'm not a business owner. I don't know how to even pitch a business professionally at a competition, but here we are. I did not win the competition, but I learned so, so much. I learned how to pitch a business professionally, all the business terminology that was really important to communicate when it came to costing and your market strategy, product market fit, uh, target market, all kinds of stuff. I just was a winemaker with an idea. So after graduating college, I moved to Modesto, California, worked for a winery out there, got about a year of experience, and I was like, okay, I'm 22 years old, I'm single, I have kids, I'm just gonna see if I can make this dream a reality. I packed up my bags from sunny California, moved 3,000 miles back to my childhood bedroom in Ohio, and became a bootstrapped, unglorified entrepreneur <laughs> to launch Redhead. I knew I didn't want to be 80 years old on my rocking chair drinking some gin and tonic one day and be like, ah, I wonder if I did it. So here we are. It's happening. It's getting real. And when we come back, we continue with this delightful voice, and it's Marissa Sergis, and she is the founder of Redhead Wine, based in Youngstown, Ohio. Her story continues here on Our American Story.
And we're back with Our American Stories and with entrepreneur Marissa Sergi's story. The year was 2017, and she'd heard about an opportunity to pitch her redhead wine to Walmart and their open call event. I was just checking email. The Young Sound Business Incubator sent me the application, and I was like, wow, I have no chance. But I was like, the answer's always no if you don't ask. Crossed my fingers, sent in the application, and I found out a few weeks later I was flying to Bentonville, Arkansas. So I was excited but nervous because I knew there was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. When you pitch Walmart, it's important to understand how to work the best with Walmart and analyzing what's the benefit for them and how you'll bring them value. You can't just pitch your product and talk about your product and who you are and your business and how it's going to work. You need to think about who you're talking to. You need to provide as much value as possible and the product sales will come later. So I had a marketing professor from YSU help me analyze Walmart stores to see what percent of the market I could capture if they gave me a test market. And I believe that really showcased that we did our research. We understand we can't just drop a product on their shelf. Who's going to buy it? What current Walmart customer is going to purchase the wine type of thing? And uh, that really helped us a lot. I took a deep breath and just walked in there with confidence. Sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. But the buyers were so kind and really interested. When Walmart invites you to open call, they want to work with you. Even if you walk away with a no or a maybe, there's still a chance. They want to make it work because they're interested in your product. They, they wouldn't be inviting you here to waste your time. But I really wasn't sure if it was a yes. So asked them, hey, is this a yes? And they said yes. And I was very, very grateful for that. And when I walked out of the buyer meeting, I felt like I had an out-of-body experience. I couldn't believe I pulled it off. I couldn't believe they said yes to Redhead Wine and allowed me to have an opportunity at my dream by creating a wine brand that could potentially be shared with the whole country one day. So the first person I called was my grandparents. First people I called were my grandparents and they were very excited. And it was nice to share that excitement with them. And I put the boots on the ground and started hitting the pavement with sales. I'm a winemaker, I make the wine, but part of my test market, I had to pitch every single manager or department lead to get them to okay the product and then I would be able to sell it there. As many as I wanted in the state of Ohio, but I knew I could only handle between 30 to 60, so we capped it at that. I didn't want to bite off too much that I could chew because you have to deliver on time and in full. You got to keep your commitments. The minute you're not honest in any business setting is the moment that you lose all of your potential and credibility. So that's something that I really tried to emphasize when I was trying to pitch and grow the company. What was most important was the, the sell-through rate. Are you meeting home offices, minimum sell-throughs? Just the number of units that you're selling per week, per month, per quarter. Are you having a great reputation? Are customers giving good feedback and looking for your product? 
and 60 stores later, a year and a half in the future, we received modular space. You have a permanent shelf position reserved for your product and your product only. So that is the most prime possession you could have as a, as a supplier, that you can't be kicked off the shelf by other competition. The home office has that little reserve sign for you with that tag, their price and UPC on it. And it's really cool to see on the shelf now. It just happened a couple months ago. A small town, 25-year-old winemaker with zero budget survived a Walmart test market with just true grit, just going, showing up, asking questions. How could he serve this store better? What could we improve on? How are sales? You have to have those conversations. Just because you're in Walmart doesn't mean you're set. There's a lot of work and responsibility that goes along with having this opportunity. It's pretty incredible that Marissa raised no money to start her business, and she's now in Walmart. Zero. Um, to be honest, I don't even care. I'm going to keep it very real with you guys. In two years, I've only spent $5,000 in marketing. It's just being honest, customer relationships, and putting my best foot forward. I think that's really helped because I am the winemaker, third generation winemaker. It's what I love and I think my customers resonate with that because there's a lot of brands out there and some of the stories are not true. They're just made up just to target a market. Redhead was made because I was hungry for hot wings and I had a bottle of wine with me. That's the real deal and I think that's why it's succeeding because I never overthought it. I just was in the moment. We employ about 40 people total at the company and we have hired at least six new additional employees due to Walmart open call. So we're very grateful to be able to do that, especially in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, I know a lot of our job losses have been in the public eye. Like GM Lordstown closed, we lost 1,700 jobs. Over 40 years ago, the steel mills closed. We lost 40,000 jobs. So being able to be from Youngstown, Ohio, while creating a California quality wine by buying the California grapes, while keeping the jobs in Ohio is super special to the area. And although we're only hiring a handful of people compared to GM or the steel mills, it's exciting to know that we're at least affecting one additional family, maybe two, three, four, and we want to continue to do so. Just really grateful for the opportunity to have a partnership with Walmart. They've impacted not only my business, but many in my community and, of course, the entire United States. They've committed to invest over $250 billion back in the U.S. economy over this 10-year span that they plan to have open call. And due to research, that's going to create over one million jobs for our country, and that's something that everyone should be grateful for every day. So, really happy to be here. At Walmart Open Call 2019, 25-year-old Marissa was invited to speak before the 500 entrepreneurs hoping to get into Walmart stores at this event, as she did. Ever since then, I've been paying it forward because I'm just so grateful and want to help others and I think that's why home office invited me to speak here and 
be kind of a supplier on the inside, helping everyone feel comfortable and confident to pitch. Just realizing everyone's human. Just be honest, be real, be yourself. And I think that's the moment that you could really succeed and uh, do what you're sought out to do to make your dreams happen. Marissa only wished that her grandma could have been there to see how her sacrifice has paid off in Marissa's life. She is absolutely amazing. She only came here with a suitcase and a dream to give the future generations of the Sergi family a better life. So um, I work so hard because I don't want to waste her sacrifice. I wish she could be here today just to see what it's like to be at a retailer like Walmart and to see what I've been able to take from all of her sacrifices to be able to be one of the speakers this year at Walmart Open Call. It's just something that I never imagined would happen, but I'm here and I'm going to embrace every moment. Her name is Michalina Sergi, but her maiden name is Valentino. She absolutely loves wine. She's one of those traditional grandmas. You're making meatballs, homemade pasta. You've ate at least three platefuls of food, but you still have to have more and have dessert and an espresso. It's a real deal. So uh, she loves any type of wine and she definitely enjoys Redhead Red Blend. And you've been listening to Marissa Sergi and she's the founder of Redhead Wine based in Youngstown, Ohio. And my goodness, to bring 46 jobs or however many she's bringing to a town What a thing to do, and what a thing for Walmart to do. And my goodness, what a story. Committing to buying an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. That's a big deal, and certainly a big deal to people like Marissa Sergi. Marissa's story, and by the way, a story of intergenerational love. Listen to the way she talked about her parents and the sacrifices they make. This This is a voice, it's a classic American voice. In the end, great, great gratitude and a hustle. She gets the order. She gets to Walmart. She says, oh, the work has just begun. I want to make sure I serve Walmart. It's just not about me. It's just not about my product. And that servant heart, boy, it was on display. Marissa's and proud parents and grandparents as well. Marissa Sergi's story and Walmart's story. An entrepreneur's story, too, here on Our American Story. continue here with our American stories and here on this show you know we love music and we've talked about this great American singer on the show before as part of our series this day in music history called the first lady of song Ella Fitzgerald was the most popular female jazz singer and song vocalist in the United States for more than a half century she interpreted much of the great American songbook and she worked with all the jazz greats from Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Nat King Cole, to Frank Sinatra, Dizzy Gillespie, and Benny Goodman. Lady Ella, as she was also dubbed, was the first African-American woman to win a Grammy. And after taking home her first two Grammys in 1958, she would go on to win 11 more. Most don't know the tragedy of her upbringing, though, that growing up trying to make it on the streets of New York, the young Ella helped her family out 
with financial struggles by working as a messenger running numbers and acting as a lookout for a brothel. But her first career aspiration, she wanted to be a dancer. But like many epic American stories, her talent, it could not be hidden. After her mother's death in the early 1930s, Ella had tried to make it on her own and was living on the streets. Still harboring dreams of becoming an entertainer, she entered an amateur contest at Harlem's Apollo Theater. Ella blew the audience away when she sang the Hoagie Carmichael tune, Judy, as well as the object of my affection. And she went on to win the contest's $25 first place prize. This was the performance that launched her career. Today, we offer you an ode to the First Lady of Song, a compilation of some of her performances and through the lens of a poem written about Ella. Here's Sarah Moore performing that piece. I took one look at you That's all I meant to do And then my heart stood still A poem for Ella Fitzgerald by Sonia Sanchez When she came on this stage, this Ella, there were rumors of hurricanes and over the rooftops of concert stages, the moon turned red in the sky. It was Ella, Ella, queen had come and words spilled out, leaving a trail of witnesses smiling. Amen, amen, a woman, a woman. She began this three-aged woman, nightingales in her throat, and squads of horns came out to greet her. Streams of violins and pianos splash their welcome, and our stained glass silences, our braided spaces unraveled, opened up, said, Who's that coming? Who's that knocking at the door? Whose voice lingers on that stage gone mad with perdido, perdido, perdido? I lost my heart in Toledo. Whose voice is climbing? Up this morning, chimney smoking with life, carrying her basket of words. A tisket, a tasket, my little yellow basket. I wrote a letter to my mommy, and all the way I dropped it. Was it red? No, 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 no. Was it green? No, 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 no. Was it blue? No, 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 no. Voice rescuing razor-thin lyrics from hopscotching dreams. We first watch her navigating an Apollo stage amid high-stepping yellow legs. We watched her watching us. Shiny and pure woman, sugar and spice woman. Her voice a nun's whisper. Her voice pouring out. Guitar thickened blues. Her voice a faraway horn questioning the wind. And she became Ella. First Lady of Tongues, Ella cruising our veins, voice walking on water, crossed in prayer, she became holy. A thousand sermons concealed in her bones as she raised them in a symphonic shudder, carrying our sighs into her bloodstream. This voice, 
Chasing the morning waves, this Elatonian voice soft like four layers of lace. When I die, Ella, tell the whole joint. Please, please don't talk about me when I'm gone. I remember waiting one night for her appearance. Audience impatient at the lateness of musicians. I remember it was April and the flowers ran yellow. The sun downpoured yellow butterflies and the day was yellow and silent. All of spring held us and a single drop of blood. When she appeared on stage, she became nut arching over us, feet and hands placed on the stage, music flowing from her breasts. She swallowed the sun, sang confessions from the evening stars, made earth divulge her secrets, gave birth to skies in her song, remade the insistent air, and we became anointed, found inside her bop. Lady, 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 be good. Be good to me, to you, to us all. Cause we just some lonesome babes in the woods. Hey, lady, sweet Ella, lady, 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 be good. Ella, 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 lady, be good, good, good. And what a beautiful reading by Sarah Moore, Sonia Sanchez's beautiful 1934 poem celebrating Ella Fitzgerald. And Ella was certainly in a class of her own. She redefined jazz and soul for the nation, and she did so while breaking down racial barriers and going against the odds in every conceivable way. No great story is devoid of tragedy, by the way, and Ella sure had her own. She battled drugs, divorce and racism throughout her career and her rise to stardom. And she also suffered from diabetes, which ultimately took her life in 1996. But what she remembered for? That voice. There's nothing like it. That scatting. The performances. She left audience after audience with an experience unlike anything they'd ever known before. There were those musicians that joined trends, and there were those that set trends. But Ella still belonging to a deep and collaborative musical heritage, transform music forever. And while it is her rendition of Mac the Knife in 1960 that broke her into the pop charts, she was still going strong well into the 70s, playing concerts across the globe, doing shows with Frank Sinatra, recording with Duke Ellington, and singing with a Benny Goodman orchestra. She recorded more than 200 albums and sang some 2,000 songs in her lifetime and sold 40 million albums. And while Mel Torme described her as the high priestess of song, in Bing Crosby's own words, quote, man, woman, or child, 
Ella is the greatest of them all, end quote. Ella Fitzgerald's story, her music, in a poem, Sonia Sanchez's poem. Again, a beautiful job here by Sarah Moore. And let's go out with one of my favorites. It's Ella singing the Gershwin classic, Summertime. This is Our American Story. American stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I Was My Husband's Caregiver As He Was Dying of Cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us. Almost 12 years ago, my world, as I knew it, ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional, a responsible and I hope beloved parent, but I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, there were no more bad days I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day if I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty 
than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way. But as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-MacGyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike, every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa, 
and I slept on the floor next to him, at the ready if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, the repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse, within easy reach while scans were performed, IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself, but just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had, and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work. I pay the bills. I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver.
it was his last best gift to me. And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story, Bill's, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And you've heard Bob Drury and Tom Clavin share their story about Red Cloud from their number one New York Times bestseller, The Heart of Everything That Is. If you've yet to hear that story, go to OurAmericanStories.com and take a listen to it. They're back now with one of the most interesting and inspiring and underappreciated chapters in American history. The story of the Continental Army's six-month transformation in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Although no battle was fought at Valley Forge, it was the turning point of the Revolutionary War. Here's Bob and Tom. Tom and I contend in Valley Forge that the characters who inhabit this book and their shared core of values, which we were pretty much blown away by, were part of the most productive generation of statesmen in the history of the United States. We say this well aware of FDR's kitchen cabinet and Abraham Lincoln's team of rivals. What we hope we have accomplished with Valley Forge is, as the anthropologists say, is to make the familiar strange and the strange familiar. When Tom and I were writing this book, we had, I guess I would call it, what, friendly arguments with... Yeah. Uh, Historians about, oh, no, Valley Forge, no. Trenton, the Battle of Trenton, the surprise attack on Trenton and the subsequent victory of Prince, that was the key to the Revolutionary War. And other, other historians would tell us, no, 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 it's when the French got into the war. And others would say, no, no, of course not. It was Yorktown that was the key. That was the turning point. Others would say, it, it was Horatio Gates' victory at Saratoga. When the Pulitzer Prize winning for his Washington biography, Joseph Ellis, and his National Book Award winning for his book on Thomas Jefferson, came out and said, Valley Forge was the ex- existential moment in the war for independence, I said, yeah, go argue with Joe Ellis. Don't argue with us, all right? Tom, what do you think? You ready for a story? Tell him a story. Sounds good to me. Um, <clears throat> As Bob alluded to, our contention from the very beginning we started working on this book was Valley Forge became the most important part of the, of the Revolutionary War. It was the turning point. And we found that out because we started to do our research and get deeply into it. The social studies class portrait of Valley Forge is guys you know, in the snow, starving and freezing, and then you had George Washington on a horse looking down and watching guys in the snow starving and freezing. And that's the social studies portrait. What we found out is that so much more was happening. Uh, a big part of it was George Washington himself. 
Uh, during the Valley Forging Cabin, which lasted from December 1777 to June 1778, George Washington went from being a, he was already a revered figure, but he went, he went from that to being an American icon, a hero, an action figure. And that happened during the course of Valley Forge. One of the things he was having to deal with was a two-front war. There was the war itself against the British. But during the encampment of Valley Forge, there were conspiracies that included his uh, senior, some senior officers and members of the Continental Congress who tried to get him fired, who tried to get him replaced. And they came very close to doing that. So that was something that was, that was very important about Valley Forge. Washington was surrounded and I think this is a very poignant part of the story. Washington was surrounded by a loyal group of young surrogate sons. But these, there was Alexander Hamilton, Marquis de Lafayette, and a character named John Lawrence. And John Lawrence is sort of like the founding father you never knew. But he's also had with him these, these generals that were, were totally loyal to him, Nathaniel Green. Uh, there was another general named Lord Sterling who he called himself that, insisted he be called Lord Sterling because he claimed to be descended from Scottish aristocracy and royalty. Washington's position was, keep fighting, you can call yourself whatever you want. Lord Sterling, whatever. You're a great general, keep doing it. The situation, one of the things that people don't know about Valley Forge, which we found out, and uh, again, now what you saw in social studies, it was not the worst winter of the Revolutionary War. There were worse winters. But Valley Forge, uh, the winter was bad. I mean, it wasn't terrible, it was bad. But what happened was the s several systems had broken down in the United States. One system was the government. The, when the British took Philadelphia, they kicked the Continental Congress out, and they pretty much spread out. Some of them went to York, Pennsylvania. Some of them simply went home. Some of them disappeared. There was no functioning government, for the most part, of the United States anymore. So Val George Washington at Valley Forge was the United States government. When Valley Forge began in December 19, 1777, the army went in there with 12,000 soldiers, and they built huts. And there's also like about four or 500 camp followers. These are women and children that followed the army wherever they went. Suddenly, Valley Forge became the seventh largest city in the United States. And it became the capital of the United States. And I think that's something most people would never realize from social studies, that because of the Philadelphia, the capital of the United States, being occupied by the British, because there was pretty much no Continental Congress, because everything else in the political system was in complete disarray, Valley Forge was the capital of the United States, and George Washington was the leader, de facto leader, of the United States. If, they, if he had suddenly been lost for whatever reason, if he suddenly decided, I've had enough, I'm, I'm getting out of here, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. They even, the British government, as a persuasion, even ordered, offered to make him a duke. So he would have been the duke of Mount Vernon, something like that, you know, if you just give up. So there was that, that idea politically that Valley Forge was at the, the, the center of the, of the revolution's universe. The other thing that was happening is that George Washington realized he cared about two things, the cause of liberty and independence and his men. And the anguish he was going through was absolutely awful because every day his men were dying. There were some who were deserting, okay? They had to, they had to get out of there, but there was, they, they were dying. The very first man who died at Valley Forge was Christmas Eve, and uh, Washington found out about it Christmas morning. It was a black soldier from, from Connecticut named Jethro. He was the first one to die. He died basically of exposure and malnutrition. 
2,000 men died at Valley Forge during the course of those six months. That's more by far than any battle in the Revolutionary War. And that's a remarkable number, and you're hearing a remarkable story about, well, something we really don't think about or know much about, but for a few pictures and a few lines in a high school history course. The story of Valley Forge, told by Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. 2,000 men died at Valley Forge, more than in any other battle in the war. Let's continue with this mostly unknown story. Valley Forge was a struggle for survival, not just of the army, but of the revolution. Because if the Continental Army had ceased to exist, which Washington expected almost every day, December 23rd, he wrote a letter to whatever is left of Congress saying, I expect any day for, the, for the, my army to dissolve and disperse. He expected every morning to wake up and look out, and they'd be gone. And if they left, if there was no more Continental Army, there was no more war for independence. It was over. Washington anguished over this. He was constantly begging the governors of the individual states, send me some food, send me some clothing. I mean, literally, you might think it's a cliche, but he literally, they were blood in the snow because of all the men that had no shoes, uh, the open sores. They were dying of starv literally dying of starvation. And Washington had to try and keep them together. Why did this army stay together? Because it ultimately did. I don't think we're giving away too much. That you know, we, did win we did win the War of Independence. That's where we come to the central figure of this book, George Washington. There was such admiration, such caring for him, that this, many of the soldiers, just despite the suffering, they could not abandon George Washington. They saw in him the war for American independence, the ideal that, they, that America was going to be. Washington was, he kept himself in check. He was an aggressive, emotional man who never let anyone see it, except for at times Martha, his wife. And when we discovered one of the main themes of Valley Forge is Washington was fighting a two-front war at Valley Forge. One was a war militarily against the British, and the second was a political war against a faction of Congress who had been displaced from Philadelphia when the British captured it, and they, were, they had uh, taken over the York, Pennsylvania courthouse, and especially the New Englanders, who never really wanted Washington to lead the Continental Army anyway. But they figured, if we're going to fight the, greatest, the great British Empire, we need Virginia in the fold, so that's how he got the job. And after he lost New York, after the, the, the stuttering Pennsylvania campaign where he, he was beaten at Brandywine Creek, he was beaten at Paoli, he was beaten at Germantown, there was more than whispers to, to usurp this man. Let's replace him with Horatio Gates, who won the great battle of Saratoga. But Washington had this inner steely quality. And not only his officers, but his NCOs and his enlisted men, they recognized it. They would not, as, as shoddily as they were shorn. I'll tell you, this, uh, just one silly example. When foreign officers would come over to either volunteer to fight for the uh, Americans or to observe, they were shocked, shocked to see the American sentries at Valley Forge in these tattered blankets, naked underneath, not ripped uniforms, naked underneath, with no shoes, standing on their hats in the snow to keep their feet as warm as possible. Mm. Washington is the reason 
that these men remained at Valley Forge. And I think he emanated that kind of steely will. He was wounded. He was wounded by these attempts to usurp his position, but he never let it show. Washington had gotten his first experience as a leader of, of men in, in battle in the French and Indian War. Uh, he never rose above the rank of colonel. He had uh, hoped to be brought into, actually made an officer in the British Army. They wouldn't have him. Uh, then between that war and the Revolutionary War, he was back on his farm. I mean, he, even as the British derisively referred to him, he was a Virginia planter. He was a farmer. There was no, no really, I would say, very formal training. So there was that insecurity. And I think also you have to look at Washington, especially I think during Valley Forge, was in such a difficult position because he was very much alone. By this time, Washington had become some, he didn't start out this way, but he was a canny politician by this time. Now, there was no doubt that the Continental Army was in dire straits, but Washington also recognized that he was throwing the gauntlet to the Continental Congress. Okay, I hear the whispers, I see the anonymous greeds against me, I know Horatio Gates has triumphed at Saratoga and you want to replace me with him? Well, I'll tell you what. Go ahead and try it. And if you do try it, this was underlying. He didn't, he didn't come out and say this, uh, but the underlying, the undertone was, if you do try this, this army will dissolve and disperse. And one thing you have to remember, to the politicians in York, some 80 miles inland, an army dissolving or dispersing, this was, you know, eight to 12 to 13,000 men. But all they could envision was, we're going to have soldiers just scavenging the countryside, taking our own farms and taking our own cattle. And so, yes, Washington was being a bit of a cynic, but on the other hand, he was being perfectly truthful. Because if they didn't get food, if they didn't get shoes, if they didn't get medicine, the army would have fallen apart. I mean, that's why... In some, in some cases, they vinegar. In some cases, they were eating... If they could, if there was a cow that had been that had died, or a horse that had died, they'd eat the, the hide, whatever they can find. Uh, there, there are stories. There's something called fire cakes. Ah, they would make. They fire would, cakes. There was what was that? Ashes from the fire and. Well, what it was, it was they. They would put. They had no leavening agent. They had no yeast, so they would put this goopy, goopy oat thing together, and they would just throw it on a rock in the campfire, and it wouldn't rise at all, and it would be filled with maggots and ashes, and that's where it got the name Fire Cakes. Yeah. And it was this hard, you know, teeth-breaking biscuit. And, and obvious, obvious question is, if this was what they had to eat, how did they survive? And I can only point out again that of the estimated 12,000 men that went into Valley Forge in December 1777, 2,000 died. So they literally, on a daily basis, were dying of starvation, exposure to the elements, disease, so uh, it was, it really, it really was is, is as horrific as, as we're making it seem was their daily existence. At one point, or not at one point, early on, these soldiers figured, okay, Washington ordered these flying hospitals set up around the countryside. But they had no idea of, you know, modern medicine. They did not know bacteria, germs. And so somebody would die in one of these hospitals. 
and they just dump the next guy on the same straw, hmm. the same vermin uh, infested straw. And finally, the soldiers, of course, not knowing the science of it, say, these are abattoirs. So they would just not tell anyone they're sick and they'd die in their huts. Mm. Uh, General Howe was the, uh, uh, there were two brothers, Richard and William Howe, uh, were the two commanders of the British forces in North America. And um, they were, they were mostly enjoying the pleasures of, of Philadelphia uh, in the winter. Uh, they, they would send out some foraging parties. There's one uh, event we talk about in, in the book that uh, one of the Howes was personally leading a, group, a, a, a British brigade or regiment out into the field to collect supplies. And Washington was enraged by this because he said, they can't do this. They're coming right in our faces. And he said, let's, let's, get, an army, let's get a force together and go, and go attack them. So we, we show them, we teach them a lesson. He couldn't get enough men fit for duty. They, they either were naked or they were starving or they were too weak to get up off their cots. And the British just went about their business, took some of the food that was around the area and came back. Uh, they were having parties. They were putting on plays. Uh, Andre. A major, uh, Captain Andre, uh, again, was romancing Benedict Arnold's future wife. Uh, the, the, one of the Howe brothers had, had a, a mistress. They had, the British office had numerous mistresses. They were just having a really good time. And the idea, and the reason why they could do that, there was no insecurity on the part of the British because they assumed that as soon as the spring came and the fighting season began, A, there'd be no American army left, or B, what was left could be easily wiped off the map. So why not enjoy, enjoy it? Go ahead, have a good time. And while they were having a good time, my goodness, again, 2000 died at Valley Forge, and this is the period between December 1777 and June 1778. As the great biographer Joseph Ellis who I think has written the definitive biography of Washington, said about Valley Forge, it was the existential moment in the Revolutionary War. And indeed, we're going to learn more about this remarkable story. Bob Drury and Tom Clavin putting meat on this historical bone with story after story about what happened to what became the seventh largest city in the United States. There was no Continental Congress. Philly had been taken over by the British. Valley Forge is the U.S. capital and they're losing men by the day. Let's pick up where we last left off. Throughout the book, there's all these footnotes in it about little tidbits that we found out during research, one of which was that it was during the Valley Forge uh, encampment that the term father of his country was first used. It was actually in a German magazine referring to the American Revolution that George Washington was the father of his country. Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania German, yeah. And um, But I think, yes, he... I think Washington uh, had probably some paternal instincts already from helping to raise Martha's children. And then he found himself, which is a really central part of this book, he found himself with these relationships with the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, with um, uh, John Lawrence, with Alexander Hamilton, that I think one of the reasons why he could stand the tremendous burden he was under because these men were unabashedly supportive of him and adoring of him, and they believed in him. And that, you know, it, it's kind of, it, it, it had to make him feel like we have to stay, stay the course, to borrow something from George H.W. Bush. We have to stay what we're doing and, and persevere. And they, they supported him enormously, totally devoted to him. They would have instantly taken a bullet for him. And that's a big part of our story. Alexander Hamilton, who was 22 years old, 
He was Washington's right-hand man. He wrote many of Washington's letters. Washington would finish his thoughts. Washington could tell Hamilton, this is what I think about, and Hamilton knew how to translate that into a thousand-page letter to some to governor of New York or the governor of Pennsylvania. There was Marquis de Lafayette, 20. He was a major general at 20, led one of Washington's divisions. Uh, when he was wounded at the Battle of Brandywine, Washington sent a surgeon to find him and said to the surgeon, treat him as if he were my son. Totally devoted to him. And then John Lawrence was also 22 uh, and became great, you know, great friends with Hamilton and the Marquis de Lafayette. And he uh, worshipped Washington. He was from South Carolina, and among the things he tried to do during the Valley Forge encampment, he kept trying to raise a brigade of black soldiers. He thought one of the ways that the Continental Army could be a more effective fighting force is get it more integrated. And in fact, he did in the sense that the, there, were, there were hundreds of black soldiers part of the Continental Army. It would be the last time America had a fighting force in the field that was integrated until the Korean War. So uh, the rest of the Army, too, was made up so much of immigrants, Irish, German, Italians, Poland. So there was a turning point at February in February was probably the lowest point for Washington. There's a famous painting and story about him kneeling in the snow and praying. We discussed that in the book. It probably didn't happen. The painting happened, but he probably didn't kneel in the snow. But it was at his lowest point. And a couple of things started to turn the tide. One thing is on a personal level is Martha Washington showed up. And you might think, well, so what? George and Martha Washington were totally devoted to each other. And when she came from Mount, the comforts of Mount Vernon to go in the snow and the freezing cold with her husband, for George personally, that was a big turning point. The other point, turning point was one of our favorite characters in the book, Baron, Baron von Steuben. What you ha probably don't know is the real story of Baron von Steuben. We mostly think of him, oh yeah, he was a Prussian general that came over and trained the troops. Well, that is true, to, up to a point. He was not a Prussian general. He was a captain. He was a con man and a spy. He had met Ben Franklin in Paris, and Franklin had completely given him a new resume, made him a major general in the Prussian army, gave him all his background and everything, and said, go over there, and why don't you see how, things, how bad things are and report back to me. He gets over there, all set to be, you know, he's got this resume that's totally doctored, and Washington buys it. So he thinks, okay, great, I'm gonna get paid a lot of money to be a spy for the French and for Franklin, he falls in love with the Continental Army. He says, my God, for the first time I believe in something. And he spends the next two or three months training the Continental Army. Um, there's so many other characters who are in this book that their stories are in there that people might not even know about. Uh, there's James Monroe as a young officer who becomes the sixth president of the United States, or fifth, John Quincy Adams is the sixth. There's even sidebar stories about uh, Captain John Andre, the, the British debonair theatrical officer, and he's romancing Peggy Shimpin, which might not seem like a big deal, but she's gonna marry Benedict Arnold, and with her lover, convince him to turn over West Point. This is all happening at the same time. What happens is that the army at the end of Valley Forge, you're getting to the end of Valley Forge, it's gonna be time for the British, who have been relaxing and partying and having a great time in Philadelphia, it's going to be time, as soon as the spring comes, to wipe out the American army. That's what they expected. They saw an army back in the fall that had barely staggered into a winter encampment and probably starved to death. They expected when the winter was over, there was either going to be no army left 
whatever was left was going to be low-hanging fruit, easy pickings. And so the two armies met at the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse. And what the British discovered is that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, I'm backing up. Because I paid Clavin 100 bucks to let me talk about the Baron Friedrich Wilhelm Ludolf Gerhard Augustin von Steuben. Von Steuben to you and me. The Baron von Steuben arrived in Valley Forge at the end of February as ostentatiously as he could. He was in a sleigh adorned with 24 jingle bells pulled by a team of Percheron horses he had purchased in France, coal black to make a good entrance into Valley Forge. And he had borrowed the money to purchase the horses because he was dead flat broke. This guy, he's my favorite. Well, uh, Tom mentioned John, John Lawrence, the, the founding father you never heard of because he died too young. Uh, there's Mad Anthony Wayne. I have so many favorite characters in this book. But the Baron von Steuben, von Steuben, is my favorite. When he arrived at Valley Forge, not only in the sleigh with the horses and the jingle bells, he had his pocket greyhound, Azor, in his lap. He was decked out in a silk uniform with these two big horse pistols. And in his wake was a retinue of aides and servants and assistance, and even a French chef he had brought along, who, by the way, quit 48 hours after eyeballing the conditions at Valley Forge. He said, no way, I'm staying here. So, and as, as, as Tom alluded to, this guy arrived in Valley Forge with a resume more doctored up than the Mayo Clinic. He had met, he was a soldier of fortune. The one thing that is true is that he had fought in Frederick the Great's Prussian army. Now, Frederick the Great and his army, in fact, his army was known as an army with a country as opposed to a country with an army. Frederick the Great was renowned throughout the Western world as the most feared military leader in the world. And von Steuben had risen to captain in this army. But when the European wars stopped, he kind of wandered around looking for a job as a soldier of fortune. And you've been listening to Bob Drury and Tom Clavin telling the story, the remarkable story of Valley Forge. And my goodness, that moment where Martha leaves the comfort of Mount Vernon in February of 78 to visit her husband at Valley Forge again in February. It's unbelievable. And this was no duck walk taking that ride. Uh, there was no mass transit, folks. And also this character, Von Steuben, who if you grew up where I grew up in northern New Jersey, there are Von Steuben houses all over the place. Because he really did become the man he'd never been and actually became a man, well, superior to his phony doctored up resume, doctored up like the Mayo Clinic. I'll remember that one and use it. And by the way, Our American Stories is a nonprofit. And if you like what you hear, the stories of your great country, stories from your countrymen and women, uh, beautiful ones and good ones, uh, send some money our way. $5, $10, a bit every month helps. Go to OurAmericanStories.com. There's a donate button. We make it easy. And this is free, uh, but making it isn't. Uh, so help us if you can. Let's return to the final installment of Valley Forge. Von Steuben eventually ended up in Paris. 
And the uh, French foreign minister, who is a big American supporter and eventually worked and worked and worked Louis XVI so much that that's what made the French come into the war. But Divergent, he saw something in von Steuben and he introduced him to Franklin and Franklin's associate diplomat Silas Dean. Now these two guys, they were, oh man, Washington has written so many letters to us. Don't send me any more of these deadbeats, these, these soldiers of fortune, these, and this is a quote from what I read, over 2,000 of George Washington's memos, private correspondence, official proclamations. I personally read these general orders, the correspondence between Congress, and I, this is my, my favorite word. He said, send me no more popinjays. Uh, we don't use that word anymore. But von Steuben, he sits down within three interviews with Franklin and Silas Dean. They realize this guy's the real deal. Because Frederick the Great had one rule in his army that no other Western army had. And this was every officer would get down and work and live with the enlisted men. Everyone else thought this was beneath them, including the Continental Army. Every other army bequeathed this job to non-commissioned officers, sergeants and corporals. And when von Steuben started telling Franklin, this is how I'll drill them, this is how I'll train them, this is what I'll do, they realized Washington, as strong as his will was in keeping this army together, as Tom elucidated, it was really a collection of disparate militias, shoemakers, farmers, sailors, miners, shopkeepers. They had no idea how to fight as one well-oiled machine. So Franklin and Silas Dean, and they say, oh, all right, okay, we got to send von Steuben over, but he's only a captain. So suddenly those captain bars disappeared and he had stars on his shoulder. And suddenly he was not only an inspector general of the Prussian army, the vaunted Prussian army, but an aide to Frederick the Great himself. <laughs> this is how he arrives in Valley Forge. Now, George Washington has no clue. He knows Frederick the Great. Oh, this is one of his inspector generals. Okay, let's go. On von Steuben's first day in camp, he decides to take an unofficial inspection tour. Here's this guy showing up in his fancy pants European uniform with all the medals, and he's walking into these filthy, dirty huts, and he starts interviewing Continental soldiers about their sanitary habits, about do you know how what the difference is between an ordinary march and a quick march. Do you, every, he, within a week, he had issued a series of memos to Washington. This is where you must dig the latrines. These latrines you have, Doug, no wonder there's so much disease in this camp. You gotta put them on the downhill slope on the other side, away from the ovens that are baking bread. You know what, and let's grade these little paths in front of the huts and let's make them regimental roots to make this army feel more professional. So Washington's all into this. And so he gives von Steuben 100 men, his own personal guard of 50, and 50 other men taken from the states equally. And he said, you are going to be von Steuben's sub-trainers. Von Steuben takes them out on the parade ground of Valley Forge. The very first day, there's 100 men. 
There's thousands of other continental soldiers. They have nothing else to do but, as Tom said, starve <laughs> and freeze to death. They're all watching. Von Steuben spends the very first morning, the entire morning, teaching them the correct way to stand at attention. He goes on. He teaches them how to wheel. You know, one of the great myths of the, the American Revolution is the Minuteman you know, slinking through the copse of trees or hiding behind a boulder and picking off the squared British redcoats in their battle formation. And yes, there were times when this guerrilla, when this Indian fighting techniques that the Americans had, that it worked. But for the most part, these people needed how to learn, how to march quick step into battle, how to wheel, how to stand when a cannonball or grape shot was taking off the, the head of the guy next to you, how to not fire until you were ordered to fire. Von Steuben starts teaching the Continental Army how to do this, how to become a professional army. And my favorite thing about Von Steuben, if I could go back, I wouldn't go back. They said, you go back to Valley Forge and meet one person, it wouldn't be Washington. Although he is the protagonist and the hero of our book, it would be Von Steuben because... He's this Falstaffian character. He spoke, he had no English. So Washington assigned John Lawrence and Alexander Hamilton. Von Steuben spoke French and German. Hamilton and Lawrence both spoke French. And they were his translators. And von Steuben was such a stickler for detail. He had one word in English. God damn. And when someone would make a mistake during the training, his face would turn, and he was a portly man with a double chin, and he was in his mid-40s, younger than most of the generals in the American Continental Army, and he would, his face would red, he'd flail his arms, spittle coming out of his mouth, and he'd yell over at Alexander Hamilton, or whoever's transferring, get over here and swear for me. And Alexander Hamilton would scurry up as von Steuben is unleashing a string of oaths and curses, and by the time Hamilton translated them into English, the Continental troops were doubled over in laughter at this guy. <laughs> but they understood that he was not afraid, like Frederick the Great, his mentor, to get down on his knees, on his belly in the muck. And this is the way you sh this is the way you put a bayonet. Your bayonet is not for cooking biff stick. It is for stabbing an enemy in the gut. So von Steuben also knew that sooner or later the charade of his resume was going to, the jig was going to be up. But by the time the jig was up and von Steuben had a, a, a lot of, of oomph in kind of putting it up himself, he, was so, he had become so enamored of not only the infantrymen, but of the junior officers. First, let me say one thing. It's kind of really skipping ahead. But the very last letter George Washington wrote before resigning his commission as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army in 1783 was to the, the Baron von Steuben, thanking him for turning his disparate militias into a professional army. So that June of 1778, five years earlier, as the Continental Army is marching out of Valley Forge to meet the British on the sandy plains of New Jersey, uh, near the small village of Mammoth Courthouse. And it was what Tom and I like to call a butch and Sundance moment for the Brits. They looked at this army wheeling and marching, and they're like, who are these guys? 
These are not the guys that we brushed off like lint at the Battle of Brandywine before Christmas, at the Battle of Germantown before Christmas, at the massacre at Paoli before Christmas. These guys look like they know what they're doing. As it turned out that day, Washington made the initial mistake of putting an en another general in charge of the attack on the British. He was bringing up the rear corps. When he got to the front lines, he saw his Continental Army retreating. Retreating orderly, thanks to Baron von Steuben, but still retreating. And for the first time in front of his age, in front of the entire, he lost his temper. He went galloping up and down the front lines until he found the general he had put in charge, and he dressed him down. And it was a blistering hot June day, a heat wave with over 100 degrees. Washington, up and down, miles and miles, spurring the troops to turn around. So much so that the horse he was riding collapsed beneath him and dropped dead of heat exhaustion. He was handed the reins of another horse and he got up. Finally, he stood on a ridge. And about a mile and a half away, the entire Continental Army could see a sea of red. 10,000 redcoats, Cornwallis's best, doing a slow bayonet charge. By this time, the British artillery had moved into range. As Washington is pointing his sword and saying to his troops, who will fight with me? Who will stand with me? Grape shot is whizzing by his head. A cannonball lands feet from his horse, splatters mud all over him. And he is looking at those British and he's saying, who will stand with me? Who will fight with me? And you've been listening to Bob Drury and Tom Clavin tell the story of Valley Forge. And again, an underappreciated story. And well, as again, the great Joseph Ellis said, and he's, I think, the definitive biographer, has written the definitive biography about George Washington. He said of Valley Forge, it was the existential moment in the Revolutionary War. And now we know why. A battle wasn't fought there, but the British were assuming that by the end of that long stint in Valley Forge, whatever was left of the U.S. Army, well, it would, well, expire, or just, well, out of sheer exhaustion, or fatigue, or worse, just quit. And something else happened. You've heard just a part of this great story. And if you want to learn more, of course, Valley Forge is the book, and the writers are Bob Drury and Tom Clavin. And you can get it at Amazon and read the story in all of its gory and beautiful detail. The story of Valley Forge here on Our American Stories. <laughs>